0: All right, recording in the makeshift booth I've set up in a closet in my house. (laughs) Uh, I've got two pillows in front of me and an afghan, a crocheted afghan hanging behind me. Let's see if this works. Should there be more commercial fishing on Lake Michigan?
1: Some say yes. If you can't get fish that's from your state and fresh, then what do you have? Some say no. They want a bigger piece of the action. And the Michigan House
0: of Representatives, well, they are thinking about it. That's this week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Ed Ronco. We will wade into the tension between commercial and recreational fishers in Michigan this week. But first, a big move on climate change. Michigan now has a new goal written into law. All of the state's electricity should come from renewable resources by 2040. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed the landmark bill in Detroit, declaring herself a climate optimist.
2: Pessimism is pointless. Let's believe. Let's fight for future generations. Let's get it done. And now, let's finish making it the law of Michigan.
0: The new law also makes it harder for local governments to refuse wind and solar farms. Whitmer framed that as giving landowners more control. If they want to build a wind or solar project, she says, they should have the freedom to do so without local governments stopping them. The bill's passed without any Republican support. Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt called the measures, quote, far-left, unworkable energy mandates that he says will increase energy costs. Now, the laws Whitmer signed this week are meant to be part of Michigan's approach to addressing climate change, at least from a policy standpoint. But lots of people are working to address it, on the ground level, IPR's climate solutions reporter Izzy Ross spoke with Yelena Lubimseva, who is a Grand Valley State University professor, and she helped produce a documentary. It's called Climate Sisu, that's a Finnish word, Sisu, that describes the concept of resilience. And the documentary focuses on that and on Michiganders working to find solutions to climate change.
3: As a parent and as an educator, I really increasingly worry about the way how we speak about climate change to younger people, I think that generation of our children and generation of our students is really disproportionately affected by this burden of climate anxiety. You know, there's this very strong feeling that our generation has dumped climate change on them and they need to figure out what to do. And this is absolutely unfair. It's a dialogue, essentially, what are we going to do about climate change? You know, we're almost like on the scavenger hunt led by these young people. You know, we are going north we are exploring, we are looking for solutions, we are open, we want to learn from the community about what is already done. And we don't want to fall in this doom and gloom. And we don't want to fall in the despair, which is unfortunately really becoming the prevailing theme when we speak about climate change. So we really wanted to step back and say, hey, you know, wait a minute, there are so many solutions
4: Were there any ones that you were surprised by or that you really thought, wow, this is an amazing idea moving forward? I don't think it is appropriate
3: to speak about one particular solution as a silver bullet, because obviously there is no silver bullet for climate change. It's a combination of various place-based solutions. We need a combination of them all.
5: It gives me hope that more voices are coming to the conversation. So we would really like to
4: connect Northern Michigan to the rest of the state.
6: And it's it's been cool to see how many different grape varietals are able to grow up here.
4: Seeing the earth as more than a resource, it's resource. Everything that I know about learning is that the more experiential, the more place-based, the more connected it is to what people care about, the more it's
3: gonna last. What we also wanted the audience to think about, Michigan has amazing opportunities. It also has a huge responsibility to the rest of the world and to the rest of the nation. At this point, Michigan probably to some extent even benefiting from climate change. We do have responsibility to mitigate it, even though we are not experiencing those drastic negative impacts of climate change, like California, like Florida, you know, like Bangladesh, like Congo, and so on.
4: As a local journalist, I often come up against the question of the importance of local or individual efforts. I was thinking about this when you when you mentioned that there's no silver bullet. What did you find working on this project?
3: I think that regardless of where we live, there is no question that like, number one priority is just going away from fossil fuels as soon as possible. There is absolutely no questions about it. But I think with all the best case scenarios for climate change mitigation, we still need work on climate change adaptation. Those are decisions that need to happen on all levels. Uh, So I think individual action is important, but it cannot be successful without support of national policies, state policies, uh, local policies.
4: One of the final messages of the documentary is that hearing about other people's efforts on climate change can help make working in climate action feel less lonely. Is, is that the case for you? Um, and what has the feedback been from other people? Well, absolutely. I think that this is the reason why I'm teaching rather than
3: just doing research. I think we all feel much better when we are connected with other people who are working for the same goal. And um, I would emphasize the importance of collective action, both for the purpose of success of the action itself. There is no question that when we work together, we achieve much better results. But I think it also has many psychological benefits, as uh, you know, our narrator Leah is showing at the end how you know the journey of climate activists is becoming much more inspired and much heavier when we work as a community. That's
0: Grand Valley State University professor Yelena Lubimseva speaking with IPR's Izzy Ross. Her work comes to IPR through a reporting partnership with GRIST. When we come back to fish or not to fish, that is the question and the debate in Lansing and in communities all along Michigan's share of the Great Lakes. That story in a moment.
1: Getting bogged down by how much new music there is out there? There's a lot. Consider a daily dose of the All Songs Considered podcast. It's the easiest way to get tuned into the music world. We spend hours combing through the new music universe, from emerging bands to time-tested icons, to bring you your next favorite artist. To get up on your music know-how, listen to All Songs Considered from NPR.
5: Hi, it's Emily Kwong from NPR Shortwave podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all people closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, science, and so much more. The NPR network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org/slash/network.
0: Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. Lake trout and walleye could be up for grabs by state-licensed commercial fishers in Michigan for the first time in decades. In recent years, those species have been reserved for recreational fishing, but a bill in Lansing could change that, and that has the attention of many people in our part of the Mitten. Northern Michigan has close ties to both commercial and recreational fishing, and those two industries are often at odds. Including now, IPR's Ellie Katz takes us to Leland to learn more.
5: There's a cold on-again, off-again rain in Leland. I'm standing on the docks of Fishtown, a collection of old fishing shanties and smokehouses situated right where the Leland River flows into Lake Michigan. It's a sleepy day by Fishtown standards, but there are still tourists braving the fall weather, looking for fish in the river and wandering into the few shops that are still open for the season. Millions of people have visited here. We probably get between 300,000 and 400,000 people visit in the summertime. And they come here, and they have a great experience. Amanda Holmes is the executive director of Fishtown Preservation Society. Most of them are not thinking about it as a commercial fishing village. But it was once. At its peak in the early 20th century, hundreds of commercial fishers operated out of Fishtown, harvesting pretty much any species the lake had to offer. The old shanties and docks and even a few old gas tanks from that era are still standing today. A lot of it's exactly the same. But what you don't have is all of the boats. There are only two state-licensed commercial fishing vessels in Fishtown these days, both run by the Preservation Society that homes overseas. Only one of those boats can harvest whitefish, pretty much the only species left to harvest commercially in Lake Michigan. But even they are in decline largely because of invasive species. So Holmes wants this new bill, House Bill 5108, to pass, or at least something similar. She says it would throw a lifeline to Michigan's commercial fishing industry and preserve an important part of the state's fishing heritage.
1: They want a bigger piece of the
5: action. Denny Grinold does not want the bill to pass. He's among many who think it could spell disaster for recreational fishing, a multi-billion dollar industry in Michigan. Grinold is a charter boat captain out of Grand Haven, and he's chair of the Lake Michigan Citizens Fishery Advisory Committee. They advise state regulators on how to manage fish in the lake. He's worried about part of the bill that would make 25% of lake trout, walleye, and perch eligible for commercial catch.
7: If that's going to happen, it's just going to be that less fish for sport
1: fishermen to catch.
5: Grinold says recreational fishing isn't what it used to be, and that more strain on the fishery would just make it even harder. But commercial fishers say the same thing. Amanda Holmes with Fishtown Preservation Society says their boat wasn't even able to catch its total quota of whitefish this season. Oftentimes, when they put out nets for whitefish, they end up catching more trout, which they're legally required to throw back. But commercial fishers in other Great Lakes states can harvest lake trout. Mike Berta co owns Carlson's in Leland, a fish processor and retailer that sells smoked whitefish, fish jerky, and fish sausage. He says people come to Carlson's to buy and eat local fish.
1: And I'd say 95% of them don't even know that the ability to do that is at risk all the time. I don't think people know, for the most part, how small the commercial fishing industry is and how vulnerable it is because of that.
5: Officials estimate there are only around 15 active state-licensed commercial fishers in Michigan. And Berta says he worries that without regulatory change, there will come a point where he simply won't be able to buy fish caught in the state.
1: If you can't get fish that's from your state and fresh, then what do you have? And and we would lose uh, a lot of our business.
5: Previous efforts to bring commercial and recreational fishers together to work on a solution haven't really been successful. And there are still some X factors, like what impact more commercial fishing in the Great Lakes might have on tribal fisheries, which are protected by treaty. Randy Claremont is the fisheries chief for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. He says he wants to find a way forward, but this time around, he sees a couple key problems with the bill. One is that 25% of total allowable catch for commercial fishers. And the other is that the bill makes a commercial fishing license a right instead of a privilege.
1: It really doesn't give me as a fisheries
6: manager or a management agency the ability to say, there's a limited opportunity here, and then when it goes away, it goes away.
5: In other words, he worries that even if, for example, the walleye population crashed one year, commercial fishers would still have a legal right to harvest 25% of it. Mike Berta, the fish processor, says he also hopes the two sides can come together soon, before it's too late for commercial fishers.
1: I mean, look around, we're in this state that has so much water and so much resources and so much opportunity for recreation and local fresh protein and foods and It's a small war.
5: Bill 5108, which is still in the House, is just the latest battle.
0: That story from IPR's Ellie Katz. It was just about six years ago that Nick Loud and his brother Chris created the Boardman Review. It is a quarterly journal. It showcases northern Michigan stories, and it is about to hit issue number 25. IPR's Dan Juan Shura and arts and culture contributor Joe Beyer explored the origins of the Boardman Review and how the Loud Brothers have created a growing community
2: through their work.
7: Tell us about the Loud Brothers and and how this project began back in 2017.
2: Sure. Well, Chris Loud is the oldest. Uh, Nick is about five years younger. Um, They're only siblings who grew up downstate in Michigan, and they both went to Kenyon College in Ohio. So they have stout Uh, Midwest bona fides. And uh, each of them started developing their own passions there. So Chris's specialty is sort of the written word. Uh, He was interested in writing and theater. And when Nick gets to college, he leans toward visual storytelling through film and photography. And they take those interests after they graduate and they start working in their fields. A couple years later, like so many others, they returned to Michigan. And by around 2016, they both settled in the Traverse City area. And it's around this time that the early ideas for the Boardman Review have been churning in Nick's head.
1: So basically, I had like this like master document going for an, a few years. I just kept adding articles or little quick thoughts that I had on stories and like different interesting people that we might want to feature. But and it was all in northern Michigan.
7: Joe, it's funny. I remember seeing something about the Boardman Review back in 2017 and just being really struck with like a curiosity about, like what is this? What's this going to be about? And I chatted with Chris a little bit about it at the time, but I had no idea sort of what would come of that initial release.
2: I, I don't think they did either. And one of the unique things about the Boardman Review and the journal is that working together, Chris and Nick have amassed this huge network of people that they solicit for ideas. And many of those people have never shared a story before in any form. Um, but somehow, some way, the review <laughs> becomes a platform where they write or read or share their passion with the community. And each issue then becomes a collage of these various... Very personal narratives and expressions. But I think the real turning point or the thing that now distinguishes the Boardman Review as something other than just a kind of magazine is what happens when the brothers decide to start producing launch events that correspond with each issue. So these are live in-person experiences where people gather, they hear the issue come to life, and then there's this network that's ever-growing of people who attend.
7: Yeah, I, I have to say you, you got to get there early. If you don't get there <laughs> early, you might be standing because these these events have so much energy around them and uh, seems like a consistent community of, of followers who, who make it a point
2: to attend each release event. Right. And so suddenly there's this genuine and real community.
1: You know, it's something that we, we thought would be just a, a really great moment to like have these people who have you know either poured their heart out into a story or have went on this adventure to have a chance to actually talk about it in front of people and then talk about it hopefully more and you're seeing people kind of like have these conversations and everyone's sort of in this
6: mood to do that and it's been really cool to see that take shape
7: And Joe, it is impressive how many connections do happen at these events, and it only seems to be growing with, you know, the release of this uh, 25th edition now.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and that connective energy is something I think that the brothers were really after. The Journal was their way to become a part of the region and get to know it, and now it's sparking these real-life connections. And I think it's had a, a genuine impact on the region. It's new, it's evolving, it's smart. That's IPR
0: arts and culture commentator Joe Byer talking with Dan Wanshura. Okay, what else should we tell you this week? Oh, I am so glad you asked. So remember a few episodes ago when we heard how Michigan apple growers were just lousy with fruit this year? A second record crop in a row meant some apples stayed on the trees this year, others piled up in storage facilities. Well, the U.S. government says it will buy $100 million of fresh apples and processed apple products to give to food banks, schools, and meal assistance programs. A significant relief there for Michigan processors. There might be a relationship between frequent concussions and suicide risk in male teens. A new study found that high school boys who reported two or more concussions over the past year were twice as likely to report suicide attempts compared to those who reported just one concussion. The study's authors caution, though, against drawing any big conclusions since social and environmental factors also come into play. If you or someone you know is experiencing crisis or suicidal thoughts, you can call 988. A federal judge says the former owner of the Edenville Dam is liable for $120 million in environmental damages. The dam near Midland failed more than three years ago, and the flood that followed forced 10,000 people to evacuate from the area and damaged and destroyed thousands of homes. The judge agreed that the owner of the now bankrupt Boyce Hydro knew the dam was at risk of failure and did not repair or report it. That's it for the Up North Lowdown this week. We had contributions from Izzy Ross, Ellie Katz, Michael Livingston, Rick Pluta, Colin Jackson, Kate Wells at Michigan Radio, and Teresa Homsey at WCMU. We make this podcast at Interlochen Public Radio. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland. I'm Ed Ronco. Before we go, we want to tell you that our friends over at the Points North podcast have been making some particularly fun episodes lately, including their latest, which is about hunting for ghost towns in Michigan's Upper Peninsula.
6: So would you call this, I mean, I guess, would you call Winona a ghost town, or what would you call it? Someone once called it an almost ghost town, and I feel like that's a pretty good descriptor of it you know it's not
5: it's not what it was 20 people can't compare it to 1200 people yeah
0: so we leave you with a little taste of that this week and urge you to also subscribe to points north at iprnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts
6: finally the trees began to clear and we come upon the real ghost town of winona you
0: can kind of see where some of
6: the stamp heads were set up oh my gosh this is huge. huge yeah got to be kidding me. <laughs> you just would never know when you're driving down the road in Winona. this is here. You wouldn't know
0: when
4: you're driving down the highway that Winona is here if not for the
6: sign yeah. in a lot of well, cases. It's just completely overtaken. I yeah. mean it's this massive structure and there's just I don't even understand how it was here at, at yeah. some point. David and I looked down a hill at the ruined structure of the Winona stamping mill. A mill that crushed rocks from the nearby mines. We stand on concrete at the highest point of the mill. Then about 50 feet down is another concrete level, and then another. Concrete spires dot the landscape. What used to prop up machinery? Yeah, this truly does feel like um, like I stumbled on like, I mean Machu Picchu or something. Exactly. you know That's, like: yeah. It's, it's yes. industrial
0: machu Picchu.: Yeah, yeah. I've heard of a few people actually use that term specifically to describe yeah. the stamp mill and others like it in the woods. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.
6: Many video games have taken
0: inspiration from the Wild West in their stories, settings, and music. This week, we'll saddle up and explore video game soundtracks that evoke the Wild West from titles like Red Dead Redemption 2, Outlaws, West of Loathing, and more. I'm Keith Brown, inviting you to come along for a trek through the Wild West on Gameplay.
6: You can stream full episodes of gameplay on demand and view playlists at gameplayshow.org.